Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy Notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals, just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And as always, thank you for being a listener. And if you do us a favor, wherever you are listening to us, if you wouldn't mind leaving us a rating and a review, it definitely helps us out. And I'm really excited to have today's guest on. We always appreciate the firecrackers in the therapy profession, the people who are out there (laughs) shaking things up and not only beating to the tune of their own drum, but also just like dancing along to it too. And we are joined (laughs) by Dr. Jamie Marich, who I've known through the EMDR world for a couple of years, and I'm a part of the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, of which Jamie is the queen and everything else (laughs) that goes along with that but thank you very much for joining us jamie we are super excited to be talking about everything that you're bringing to the therapy world and challenging us all to get better oh it's my pleasure to be here i i love how you rock and roll it as well so this conversation (laughs) will be very exciting for me so what we ask everyone when we get started is who are you and what are you putting out into the world so, well, Kurt referred to me as a queen. So for you Game of Thrones fans, I prefer the title Khaleesi, but I'll just put that out there. <laughs> I love it. Um, I love it. <laughs> in any event. You know, it's, it's a great question. And I, I have my hat involved or my hand involved in a lot of different hats clinically and educationally. And as Kurt said, I'm the founder of an organization called the Institute for Creative Mindfulness. And we are fundamentally a continuing education initiative that strives to offer transformative continuing education in both EMDR therapy, others, some other trauma-focused therapies, which is also including expressive arts therapy. And dancing mindfulness is a part of that. Some trauma-informed yoga is a part of that. And this whole thread of using principles of mindfulness as an educational device really drives us as an organization. I still am an actively practicing clinician. I am still involved in the arts. And it was interesting, a few months ago, this phrase, I facilitate transformative experiences came up. And I added that to my bio because I really think if I have to describe what defines all of the different work that I do, I'm also a yoga teacher, Reiki master. I do a lot weirder stuff than EMDR, although EMDR can (laughs) be looked at as weird. That the, the one thread that really runs it all together is this passion I have for facilitating transformation because I'm so very glad that people were there to do it for me and that others are still there to help me continue to, to transform my own experiences, to transform my pain into gold, as it were. 
And so it's just my great pleasure to offer that for others. In addition to being a facilitator of transformative experiences myself, I also like to mentor others in that process. Uh, With the Institute for Creative Mindfulness, we have a very active faculty network on both the EMDR and expressive arts side, people we've brought in as consultants to work with our team and hope to continue to uh, mentor into faculty role. Kurt is one such individual who has started as a student with ICM and has been involved now as a facilitator and assistant. And I mean, to me, the mark of a good teacher is when you teach others how to teach as well and mentor others how to pass that forward as well. Because my vision is not to go out and do all the classes. I would much rather have a group of people who can share a lot of these transformative practices in their own communities. Nice. I love that. And if you want to come onto our podcast and give me comments like Jamie, you can reach out to us on our social media. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Now, having gotten to know Jamie over the last couple of years, I think that you in some ways have a, a... unique story that led you into becoming a therapist and you know there's factors that a lot of other people share but I think to kind of put today's episode into context I I think it's important to kind of know where Jamie's coming from and why she does the things that she does it's a great question I actually detested psychology when I was an undergraduate student my degree is in history and American studies, which is a subset of the English department. Basically means I have a pop culture degree. And <laughs> imagine that. It's interesting, though, because I was just talking with a friend of mine from that program. And he went on to be a lawyer. I went on to do what I do. And we were both just saying how American studies was such a good foundation for both <laughs> of the fields that it was just like a really good liberal arts degree. So I, I truly went to my undergraduate, just riddled with my own stuff. Uh, A lot of unhealed trauma that really came out to play once I got out of my parents' house. My addiction really took off when I was an undergrad. And so when I graduated, I literally had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I had a very, you know, kind of horrible addiction problem that developed, which stemmed from a lifelong experience with dissociative issues, because that was always my MO for coping, really. So I ended up going to Bosnia in 2000. My family's from Croatia, and that I have a lot of interest in that part of the world. There was a civil war there in the 1990s. And to make a very long story short, I went there to teach English, and I came back with a passion for social work and counseling. Uh, you cannot work in Bosnia or any war-torn area and not learn about trauma. And at the same time, I had the good fortune of being mentored by a good friend of mine. Uh, she, she has since passed away and she started as my recovery sponsor uh, who got me into my own healing as well over there because she noticed how I was having meltdowns on my job mm-hmm. and would say things like, this isn't just a, a, a tearful reaction. This seems connected to trauma. And when I continued to struggle with chemicals, even after moving there, I knew she was somebody that I could reach out to. So I, I entered into my own personal recovery, essentially working in a developing country. And I she, basically, when I had about a year sober, she just said, why don't you go back to grad school for counseling? I'll think you'll be good at it. And I gave her the old, but I hated psychology. I don't know what you mean. <laughs> and she said something very profound that working in this environment as a teacher for several years taught me a lot of what I needed to know about the art of working with trauma. And she goes, now go back and learn the science. And I did. 
and I went to graduate school and it was, and it was very much a useful experience. Then I ended up when I was about two years sober and a year into graduate school. And I was starting my internship working with kids on a residential mental health unit, all of whom were survivors of trauma. I noticed that I was getting triggered significantly and specifically a lot of dissociative symptoms were emerging. And it made a lot of sense because I had two years sober from drugs and alcohol at that point. That had become my dissociative device, right? Yeah. And then once that cleared up, a lot of the childhood dissociation that had been mounting and mounting and mounting from a very early age just really, really surfaced. And so I had a coworker who did an intervention on me and said, you are dissociating very badly on this job. Mm. And unless you get more help, you're not going to last a minute in this field. And so I sought out a graduate professor of mine because my thing was, yeah, I had no problem getting more counseling, but I didn't understand how more counseling was going to help because I'd had a lot of CBT at that point, a lot of 12 step knowledge at that point. I knew what I was supposed to be thinking. I knew what my thinking errors were. I knew what spiritual principles I ought to be applying. And I was still stuck like nobody's business. And so I got a card. Basically what was said is here, go see this provider in Boardman, Ohio. She does all the weird stuff. And that's how (laughs) EMDR was introduced to my life. Go see the person who does the weird stuff. And truly I was willing to try anything at that point that was different than the, how does that make you feel? What are you thinking yeah. about now? Let's slogan this. So yeah, she she heard me give a little bit of my backstory and what was bothering me. And it was at that point, I was clearly definitively diagnosed as having a dissociative disorder. And there was no doubt in my mind that that diagnostically met what was going on with me, even more so than the PTSD diagnosis would have. And yeah, through through a summer of EMDR, it lifted what was a very significant portion of my life to that point. I had spent in either suicidal ideation or self-injury. So yeah, I just knew I had to offer EMDR to people. It felt malpractice for me not to after having such an amazing experience with it. And so that started my journey with getting more advanced training in things like EMDR and expressive arts therapy. Although my expressive arts therapy journey was kind of funny because it was the exact same mental health residential ward that I was interning on. Mm -hmm. And I had a supervisor who was, God bless her, too burned out to care. (laughs) And she said, I think there's a lot of supervisors that have been there. (laughs) And she said, Oh, you sing songs, you dance dances. Why don't you do that with the kids? Certainly nothing we're doing really works. And so she gave me a blank check to really explore a lot of these performance art modalities that I had used to teach English when I was in Bosnia, because I've been uh-huh. singing and dancing and on stage in one, some form or another <laughs> my whole life. And yeah, so that's how I started a lot of my interest in clinical expressive arts and continued to, to get more training and a lot of self-study in that. And then eventually yoga, meditation, Reiki kind of came to my path through my weird counselor. And to me, the thing that really fuses them all is this invitation to repair our relationship with our body, that we have to access healing at the level of the body if we're ever going to hope to heal our mind or if, if your b- beliefs take you there to work with our soul and those principles and those aspects of us. And so since those early days, because I had such a radical experience with the power of embodied healing, I've just been an ambassador for it because that's where I have seen so much of the deep transformation occur. 
And as Kurt referenced, I've been pretty out through most of my career, even as I've become more public, definitely out as a recovering person. In in 2015, I also kind of fully identified and came out as bisexual. On one way, it wasn't a big coming out because people who really knew me knew, but I felt it was very important to identify that in some professional discourse, especially as we talk about working with people who are diverse. And then in 2018, I kind of fully came out with a lot of my struggles with dissociation. I, I, I had t- uh, dipped my toe in the waters earlier, like in my 2011 book, EMDR Made Simple, I referenced having dissociative issues. Yet in 2018, I wrote this article where I definitely called out what my parts are. And, mm-hmm. and I'll say of all three of those coming out, coming out as dissociative was probably the most scary and most intimidating because there's just so much misunderstanding and misinformation about what the dissociative mind even is and how it works. Yet I felt to truly teach about it, I had to be candid. And that's why I made the choice I did. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate upfront. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. I've heard you say before about in this field that it's easy to come out as being recovered from substances. It's Mm -hmm. relatively easy to come out and get a community around coming out as an LGBT therapist. The dissociative aspect, I've, I've heard you talk about kind of the response to being a therapist who dissociates as being new territory. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk about what the therapist community's response to that initially Mm -hmm. was, and then also kind of how your clients have responded to knowing Mm -hmm. that this is a a shared feature too. Great question. The only comment I'll make about coming out as an LGBT therapist is very determined on where you're at in the country, because there's still Mm -hmm. a lot of folks that really, really struggle. Um, the, the interesting point, though, about coming out very fully with dissociation is, by and large, the response I've gotten from other therapists has been one of gratitude. I remember a few years back when I kind of tested it out at a talk that I was giving and was just speaking very candidly about dissociation. A woman came up to me afterwards just in tears saying, I can't believe somebody at the front of the room is talking so candidly about dissociation. And it just meant a lot to her. And then when I wrote the the article in 2018, the fighting dissociation phobia, the letters I got and emails were just overwhelmingly positive with many other therapists coming out as a dissociative professional to me as well, saying they had never told anybody. I've had EMDR trainees 
come up to me and just with really with a lot of shame because they're afraid of how they've been judged for it. Not only thank me for what I've done, but then eventually come out to me themselves and then ask, how can I be real about this while also taking care of myself? So yeah, if, if people are talking crap, which some of them are, Kurt, as you encountered at a very recent conference. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think the biggest threat that, that is out there about it, it is, is not, oh, she's impaired in any way, because I, I really believe that a big part of coming out is if people ask me, well, what are you doing to take care of yourself? I have to be able to tell them very candidly. And for me, being candid is a big part of how I do stay present, to be quite honest. It's when I'm hiding who I really am from the public that I run a bigger risk of being a danger to my clients, right? And in terms of the client base, I've gradually attracted more and more over the years. It's, it's also other folks who have some level of dissociation due to trauma who really feel they want to have a therapist who's candid about being able to talk about it and they don't feel they have to hide from. Um, because I cannot tell you, and you may have encountered this too, or your listeners may have, the amount of clients who have just experienced a high degree of shame from therapists mm-hmm. about dissociative symptoms they experience and therapists who say things like well if that part's bothering you just tell that part to shut up oh, oh yes geez. yes oh, oh don't man. Don't, okay. don't listen to those parts <laughs> of yourself and and i think some of that comes from maybe a well-intentioned but definitely a misunderstood place about you know about the disease and not even the disease but just the 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 way the dissociative mind works that can manifest as a clinically significant disorder. So overall, it has been an incredibly positive experience. Because I've learned in my addiction recovery that the more comfortable I have been able to be with being authentically me and to speak from this candid place, the, the, the better I am, the more functional I am, the better the teacher that I am, the more present the teacher that I am. And I remember many years back, people were asking me, well, Jamie, when are you going to do a course on EMDR and dissociation? Because it's, it's a very hot topic in the EMDR community. How do we work with dissociation? You work a lot with complex trauma. And my answer in my gut of guts was I could not teach on dissociation until I was able to be real about it. Mm-hmm. That I could go up there and do the PowerPoints and cite the citations and cite the studies, which are important, to be clear, because a lot of that yeah. has really been needed to validate the existence of dissociation. But that's not my style to talk about it from that perspective, because anytime I would try to do that, it was just feeling like I was turning into a number or a clinical pod, as opposed to this is a very rich lived experience I have to share. And I've always been careful in any of my speaking candidly that it's not all about me, because I, I, as a phenomenologist, I recognize that anybody's lived experience here is valid to enter into the discussion. And one thing I try to do in teaching on dissociation is to help people recognize the power of their own lived experience to help them make better clinical decisions and intertwine with what they've already learned. But I think in order to do that, I have to be able to model a candidness and an authenticity myself. The question I have, because this is, I've not been involved in this conversation at all. So I'm just Mm. sitting here wrapped uh, with, uh, you know, kind of very interested in this. But when you said that therapists have been relieved and there's Mm -hmm. not been, you know, this huge pushback except something that happened with Andrea. So we'll talk about that next. But, (laughs) But for me, I guess 
I, I, I want to f- more fully understand the experience because I know there's times when I mildly dissociate in session mm-hmm. where I'm, you know, I'm overwhelmed or whatever. And I, you know, I lose, I stop tracking. I do mm-hmm. those types of things that are fairly typical. And I haven't really thought about what it would be like to have dissociation in session in, in kind of a more, I don't know what the right word is in a more kind of Mm-hmm. intense way. I, you know, I, I don't know, like I know what I do to take care of myself to decide to try to stay present. Mm-hmm. But to me, I'm just, I'm very fascinated because I think that there are things that come up for me in session that have mm-hmm. to do with my own, yeah. you know, anxiety, depression, you know, the things that I face and I know what I do, but I'm just very curious because I think that dissociation and especially any kind of dissociative disorder, it's very scary for therapists, mm-hmm. even though we're supposed to know what we're supposed to do about all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like, what does it look like for you? Yeah. How do you manage it? Like, what are the things that you would recommend to other folks who are experiencing sure. these types of things as well? You know, kind of the survival guide aspect of our podcast Great. of if you have dissociation as a therapist, what do you do? Well, what does it look the first like? reality to recognize is we all dissociate. For and sure. I think that is the <laughs> big thing that helps to normalize this as an issue, as a condition. When I teach on this, I offer a lot of examples of how the Netflix binge can potentially be dissociative. Drifting mm-hmm. off in a daydream when you're feeling overwhelmed could potentially be dissociative. We've all done that uh, yes. at one time or another. Uh, there's just a lot of ways that are socially accepted. Diving into our phones can be a way that we dissociate. And, and the key thing is to understand that all dissociate means is to sever. The Latin root where we get the word dissociate means to sever. And we have this tendency to sever from a moment when the moment is overwhelming. Or when mm-hmm. the moment, and that's just a general word I use, that sometimes it hits us more as hyperarousal, sometimes it's more hypoarousal, but there's just some kind of activation. And when we are with clients, for instance, a lot of times it's their own content they're bringing forward that can cause us to have this severing. Uh, sometimes it's just our own tiredness, our own tiredness, not yeah. feeling well on a day-to-day basis. I know, for instance, when I am overheated and I don't have proper rest, I am in a much more likely place to dissociate, not just when I'm with clients, but when I teach as well. And I I mean, I think the key for me from a survival guide aspect has been really developing an ironclad mindfulness practice. And another way to kind of look at the connection here between dissociation and mindfulness, and this comes from the work of Christine Forner, who's a leader in the field, that dissociation is essentially the opposite of mindfulness, or Mm -hmm. dissociation is a sense of missing mindfulness. And when you've learned to dissociate as a response to unpleasantness, it could become very difficult to practice mindfulness. And so a joke I often make when I teach is, okay, so mindfulness is off the table, right? We can't teach mindfulness if people <laughs> dissociate. It's like, you know, BS. I mean, the answer is obviously that's, that's the medicine is, is teaching mindfulness, but in a way that's very graduated, very meet people where they're at. And so not only would I take that approach with clients who dissociate, but for me as a therapist, Having my practices I do every morning before I see a client or before I teach are absolutely vital. And it's, it's a little yoga sequence that I do, a breath sequence that I do. I carry rocks in my pocket. Some breath strategies I could do in any given moment can always help kind of bring me back. And my favorite working definition of mindfulness is the practice of coming back to the present moment. And that's a linguistic thread that we really get from the Sanskrit definition of mindfulness, that mindfulness is not like be here. I mean, it it can be that whole be here now idea, but even more than be here now, it's okay, notice that you're not here now. 
And when you do, how can you return back to the now? And I say this when I teach that it may take you eight, 10 times a minute to, to keep coming back. But the more and more you do it, the more automatic that it becomes. So something that I, I train therapists with, especially when I'm working with them on kind of how do you develop your wellness and your self-care plan, is I would rather see you do small mindfulness practices throughout the day in a consistent manner than do nothing and go to one good yoga class every weekend. <laughs> Still go to the yoga class if you can, if that's your self-care you've established for the week, still go to the spa. But the best, most consistent self-care that will help you stay present and will help you release as you go is to have these little release rituals and strategies. Another one that I do often is after sessions, I'll just kind of flick my hands down to the ground. Mm -hmm. And as a way of saying, okay, I'm releasing whatever I picked up in that session. And sometimes even during the session, if I find myself drifting off in any way, I I know how to place my hands or my fingers just so using some yoga mudras I've learned. Sometimes it's just a matter of drawing my attention back to the third eye area, the center of the forehead, even if I can't touch it, because that's drawing too much attention to myself, Mm -hmm. just bringing my attention and awareness there and taking a breath into that is another strategy I do as I go, because that third eye area which it would be the, the woo-woo way of looking at it. <laughs> yes. The scientific reality is that's our medial prefrontal cortex, which is where mindfulness mm-hmm. happens. It's the pineal gland, which is responsible for so much of this like, good hormone release. So it's, it's really just an accumulation of little strategies like that that I've had to learn for my own survival in this world <laughs> that yeah. I believe make me a much more present therapist. And I hope to pass that on to others. So we've hit a couple of times in this episode or made reference to EMDRIA, which for our mm-hmm. American audience is the, the big EMDR association. Yeah. It really, what happened at the, the most recent conference is just a, a therapist with a bone to pick a- asking questions. <laughs> and imagine critical therapists out there. But Yeah. And to be clear, that's not EMDRIA's fault. I mean, no, that's, that's yeah. literally any conference other than Therapy Reimagined where this happens. Wonderful. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> if anything, I just want to interject before you say the rest of your question. I give a lot of props to the EMDR International Association for inviting me to speak this year from this personal perspective on dissociation. I didn't think they would, and they did. And so I really give them credit. And yeah, as as Kurt mentioned, there was a therapist in the audience who seemed to have a bone to pick about my perspective, but I just dealt with that. So, But for our longtime listeners, Katie's made reference before about some of her distancing from a professional organization. You've had kind of a a story that's similar with this, with (laughs) with Emdria, and kind of where I think the benefit to our audience is, is knowing when you have disagreements, knowing what Mm -hmm. kind of advocacy that you can do and kind of that reconciliation process of, of where your journey is when it comes to the professional organization. Well, I'll tell you a little bit of the, of the backstory because the more I've really analyzed it, I don't see Andrea as a lot of the culprit for some of my disdain earlier on as just more the EMDR establishment. Because to give listeners a little bit of a backstory, I, I mean, I think EMDRIA here is actually what has allowed EMDR to really grow. Because mm-hmm. um, EMDR was, of course, created by Dr. Francine Shapiro, the late Dr. Francine Shapiro in 1989. And it was handled for many years just under the auspices of her institute, the EMDR Institute. 
And even in, in these modern times, the EMDR Institute is still kind of seen as like the old school EMDR training with, with <laughs> models that are most connected to Dr. Shapiro and people who really stayed close to her. But in 1995, Dr. Shapiro recognized that we had to have a separate organization independent from her EMDR Institute in order to regulate standards and training over EMDR. And what Dr. Shapiro did was essentially allow Emdria to be created. And I give so much credit to her for that now in a way that I didn't really have vision to see 10, 12 years ago when I was really first starting to get involved. Because I look at how some of these other therapy modalities that are good, that have, uh, and I'm not going to mention any by name, but that have really emerged as popular modalities for trauma, but they've kept the tight trademark on them. And it's, it's to me makes it more about a commercial practice than something that we're opening up to greater scrutiny and having other people's perspectives come in. And the reality that I've come to learn is the existence of Emdria allows somebody like me to exist, mm-hmm. who is a rebel, but in a lot of ways, you know, I stay loyal enough to the standard protocols that we're asked to teach, but fundamentally, as long as my materials pass muster with Emdria, I'm allowed to teach how I want. And that's something not a lot of innovative therapies can actually purport at this point. And so, yeah, like when, when I first started getting involved and some, some of my perspective on this is I think this was a little bit of my youthful enthusiasm, not liking what she saw <laughs> when she met the man, like, Oh, you know, you're trying to make EMDR this very inaccessible thing and, and all of that. And like any professional organization, I think you have rising waves and tides that can ebb and flow with who's on the board, with who's in charge of leadership, with who's in charge of standards and training. And I mean, a lot of what I've just tried to learn to do over the years is package a lot of my innovative ideas in language that is congruent with standard protocol EMDR. And to mm-hmm. me, they, they do exist very well. And I wrote a blog not too long ago called Not So Much of a Rebel, making peace with the standard <laughs> protocol. Because what I've I've really learned is that the standard EMDR protocol, for instance, which Emdria enforces is not the enemy. I think if it's rigidly applied, it can certainly be the enemy. But the key that I've learned now in training other therapists is you have to teach the standard protocol well. And to intone the wisdom of one of my yoga trainers, you have to learn the rules so you know how to break them elegantly. Mm-hmm. And in what context to break them elegantly. But if you don't learn the rules to start with, then you're just going to come off as amateur. And I think a lot of my, my conflict and what I'm still kind of this legendary figure for in some circles is in, in 2010, I, <laughs> oh, this is such early times, I, I, wrote a, I wrote a pretty abrasive letter to the editor, to the Emdria Journal, calling out some of doc, what I felt were Dr. Shapiro's double standards that, that I still think with due respect to her, have have seeped into the EMDR community. Like something I've never liked is how, for instance, in EMDR, we have this thing called the Detour Protocol, which is a specialty protocol that can be used for addiction. It has very little research behind it. But to me, the reason it's been elevated so high is one of Dr. Shapiro's close associates developed it. Whereas when some other folks would come out with their innovative ideas, what would often be used to squelch them down is, well, where's the research? Mm-hmm. And so what mm-hmm. I essentially did in that letter to the editor was, was call out what I saw as a double standard. And you know, she answered it in a way that I, I think was, was diplomatic and fine at the time. 
But that's, that's, that's something I didn't like. And it's a reason I distanced myself from the EMDR mainstream for about, for about five years at that point, because I never abandoned doing EMDR as a therapy. I knew it was like the intervention that defined me as a trauma therapist, but I didn't know if I wanted to be involved with training it. I was offering a lot of advanced topics courses, especially on EMDR and addiction, but I didn't know if I had enough technical good girlness. <laughs> I don't know where that word came from. Uh, in order to be a uh, a basic trainer or or a standard trainer, and then I had a really good experience. This is kind of what brought me back into the fold. In 2014, I was invited to Brazil, and and in the interim from like 2010 to 2014. I still did a lot of trauma teaching. I, I was mostly teaching just courses in trauma-focused care for one of the national circuit companies. I had developed dancing mindfulness during that period and was experiencing a lot of EMDR ideas. And then I went to Brazil. And I think this is a fun story, so I'm going to tell it. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the Brazilian EMDR Association invited me to come down. They had read my book, EMDR Made Simple, to speak on EMDR and addiction. And I was a little mystified because all of them in their establishment were trainers for the EMDR Institute, Dr. Shabiro's company. And I think my first response when they invited me was, do you know who I am and what I believe? Because like, cool, I'd love to go to Brazil. But, and, and the woman who invited me said, yeah, I read EMDR made simple. I don't agree with everything in it, but we like the way you teach on addiction. So would you come? And there was this sense of when you do a demonstration, just follow the standard protocol and you'll be fine. And I really had no problem doing that because I never felt I had deviated much from the standard protocol. But what I had always been about was amplifying a higher degree of phase two preparation, being more creative with these cognitive interwaves or proactive measures we use when somebody gets stuck. And what was funny was I did this demo in Brazil on stage. And what I found was I followed the standard protocol, but I was myself how I did it. I brought my own personality into it. And afterwards, I just had such a great response to it. And in that moment, I knew I could be a trainer. That the key here is teach what I'm supposed to teach, but with the personality that makes this more friendly and more accessible. And even at that point, I have found that the Andrea standards had become, because like with a lot of institutions, you have your ebb and flow with sometimes the standards and trainings, people getting more rigid and then a little more relaxed. And I noticed that there was a little bit of a relaxing as long as you were able to justify why you were making the modifications you were making. And even in the EMDR standards now, by EMDRIA, you're, you're allowed to teach whatever you want supplementary for preparation for closure for how you take history but what they want you to stay adherent to is kind of the standard reprocessing protocol and when I realized those were the rules I'm like I could follow these rules <laughs> so it's it's just really cool so I do think when I look at my journey with with the EMDR community it it has been this this journey of finding an organization that represented this therapy I love so much and initially and you both may relate to this. Once you get on the insides of an institution, it's like, yeah. what? No, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're just, you're ruining it for me. How is this working? And I and I think with with some of my youthful enthusiasm, I was initially put off by some of that. And I think that's what inspired. I, mean, not, I don't regret I wrote that letter in 2010 because people still talk to me about it, which is funny. But I I really have have learned as I've stepped back just a lot of the position Dr. Shapiro was in. And it was a way, something I was not sensitive to when I was younger, that she was really hated for putting this thing out that many saw as too good to be true. And she had to really crank down 
and get institutional and just advocate for a lot of research in order for people to not see her as a total quack. And the more I realize that her insistence on that is why EMDR is so mainstream now, I have nothing but gratitude for her. I mean, I still don't agree with some of the ways she kind of has taught EMDR, yet, I mean, how, how could I not love it and see her as a genius for giving us this, this thing that's helping to change so many lives now? Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. <clears throat> there's, there's a couple of things in here that I want to highlight. And Go, one, mine, mine, Kurt. <laughs> one, one is really for all of the advocacy that Katie and I do and encourage involvement in the professional organizations and taking our hats off of the current professional organization that we're in is that nothing's perfect. Sure. And and continuing to advocate and disagree does not necessarily mean getting into being on the board positions. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, raising the flag on this and, you know, continuing to live through the principles that you find true to yourself. Right. And, you know, shifting gears a little bit here for our listeners, too, that you know, one of our most popular episodes is, is CBT crap where I lament, (laughs) I I, I lament, you know, manualized treatment so much. And one of the difficulties that I've really struggled with myself over, you know, the last couple of years of getting so involved in the EMDR world is how can I be so me in what therapy is and yet have this, you know, structured manualized therapy that I do. And Mm -hmm. it's really what Jamie's talking about here that even when we do have these, these protocols and these treatments that we do, it's all about how we make it work. And it's really being able to bring our own flavor into them. That's what makes therapy so transformative, whether it's EMDR, whether it's something else. And unfortunately, so many people get trained in just do this protocol, don't have flavor. And as I've gotten more and more involved in EMDR and through the consultations that I provide, I talk about the basic protocol is like learning the the chords on a piano, whereas Mm -hmm. actually demonstrating it is playing jazz. And so there's a lot of just kind of having that foundational aspects of what you do, but it ultimately becomes how you do it that makes it work. Agreed. Well, well presented, well summarized. So I'm not an EMDR therapist. I've not learned it yet. And I say yet because I know that Kurt's going to convince me that I need to learn it at some point. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's totally converted. Um, And so with the great respect I have for Kurt, I've I've started opening my mind to EMDR. Mm -hmm. But I do recognize that it felt very woo-woo. It felt Mm -hmm. like this weird protocol because I was you know, in school at the time that it was just starting, not right when it was starting to mm-hmm. be created, but when it was starting to kind of see, see the light of day, so to speak, mm-hmm. on more of a mainstream stage. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't get it. Mm-hmm. Now I'm starting to get it. So I'm not going to say that I'm asking completely from my own position, but close to my own position. Why do you think 
those of us who are our general practitioners don't get it. Like, what is it about EMDR that we don't understand? Because to me, I feel like there's, there's a lot that Mm -hmm. there's, I mean, and there's so many different protocols and and therapies that, Mm -hmm. that do what you're talking about, kind of get into the healing the body and, and those kinds of things. And so I guess, Tell me why you love EMDR so much is maybe what I need to be asking. <laughs> For me, I'll, I'll, I'll call it out. It was just such a powerful personal experience with it that had I not had that, I don't know if I would have been this much of an advocate for it. And it was such a powerful personal experience I had after trying so many of the standard things that helped to be clear. They, they got yeah. me far, but not through that ultimate stuck point that asked me to get to the level of my brain below the words, below the thoughts and into the body and and the memories and all of that. So, I mean, I want to be clear that for me, it was having that deep personal experience for a lot of our trainees who come forward, even if they haven't experienced EMDR very directly, a lot of what brings them to us is this sense of frustration that what I'm doing still isn't enough that it's not helping people kind of clear that ultimate stuck point. But then following up on that, I also want to be clear, I am not one of those EMDR as a panacea type. I think anything that gets into the body has potential here. And any clinician who is serious about working with trauma ought to be trained in at least one of these specialty modalities that is goes below just this talk therapy norm, because that's where unhealed trauma really kind of plagues us. And it's fascinating because I also do a lot of work on a concept called spiritual abuse, having grown up in some toxic religious environments. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these clinical organizations and therapeutic modalities really are like religions, if we're being very clear about it. Yeah, You have your devout believers who kind of ruin it because they can be so (laughs) zealous and fundamentalist about it. But I mean, even part of my spiritual path right now is I'm a fusionist. I mean, I still have a Christian identity, but I have a lot of Hindu threads in me as well from mm-hmm. my from my yoga practice. And there's a lot about Buddhism I draw from. And to me, one informs the other. And that's a lot of the kind of person that I am. And so it's a lot of the therapist that I am as well. That for me, EMDR and expressive arts are my two main things. They inform each other very beautifully. But I do draw on a lot of learnings from other therapies. So I think the key is, are you doing something you're passionate about that you believe in? Because if you know anything about the common factors research and some of that project, the therapist's passion and belief that something will work for the client is one of the main ingredients that's believed to be a factor in why therapy does work for people. Because I can't, in good conscience, sell something I don't believe in. Yeah. And for me, that's CBT in these days. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I recognize that it, it, it's the needed starting point for a lot of people. And so I, I can pull out enough CBT stuff if I have to. But my presentation of that is more DBT at this point because, hey, yeah. mindfulness. So, yeah, I, I, I just think there's a lot of interesting conversations to be had here. And uh, as long as the client is on a path that's helping them to get what they define as their, their kind of home goal. Uh, I think that's the key. And a lot of the stuff we squabble about really is just details. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Where can people find more information about you and the trainings that you provide? 
Sure. Well, my pleasure. This was a fun interview. You both asked such <laughs> wonderful, thought-provoking questions. So a couple resources sites. First thing is just my name.com, jamiemarriage.com. That'll take you to my main site with my calendar and my book projects. Instituteforcreativemindfulness.com is where you could find more about EMDR and expressive arts training. We also have a subset page, dancingmindfulness.com, if you're interested more specifically in that. And then my site I'm very proud of uh, as a resource, site is called traumamadesimple.com. And that is a site that I have set up primarily for consumers and clients to be able to access anything I've done that is complimentary online. So a lot of articles, a lot of videos, audio recordings. I just added some yoga nidra meditations that have a clinical bent that the general public can do. So uh, yeah, all of those sites you're, you're welcome to use. And for clinicians listening to this, which I know is a big part of your audience, feel free to use anything you find on traumamadesimple.com. Thank you so much. That's so generous. We appreciate it so much. And we will include links to all of Jamie's stuff in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And while you're over there, check out our Therapy Reimagined 2020 conference that's coming up. We are in the throes of picking out our speakers for this year's conference. So we'll be updating that here pretty quickly. And until next time, I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Jamie Marich. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thrizer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code modern gets you two free months.